Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this evening together. We thank you for the ability to still be able to meet with everything else going on in parish life, and just grateful for this community, Lord, that we are able to gather together and dive into your word. We're also grateful, Lord, that you have already in store for each one of us a message, a word, something of hope, of comfort, something to challenge us, whatever it may be, Lord, you knew each one of us would be here tonight. And so we pray, God, that we would have the openness and the receptivity to hear and receive whatever that is, to take it with us this week, and to allow this time in Scripture to inspire us to fall more deeply in love with you and follow you more faithfully. We pray, Lord, that you would remove from us any anxieties or worries, any distractions leading us away from this time, and that you would illuminate our time together. Allow the words of Scripture to come to life in a new way for each one of us, and bless us each in the ways that we most need it. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So again, we are in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the 28th Sunday in Ordinary Time. It is the story of the cleansing of the ten lepers. This story only appears in the gospel of Luke, though it has some small similarities to some stories in other gospels or previous places in Luke where Jesus heals lepers, but this is the only place where he heals the ten And so we're going to read uh, verses 11 through 19, first time through, especially because this is a very clear narrative. Um, We're going to make sure that we are trying to enter into the text. We're trying to listen and make sure that we are engaging our senses. So paying attention to what we see, what we hear, what we, um, like placing ourselves in the text. Yeah. The microphone is doing something weird. Oh, I don't hear anything. And I don't know how to fix that. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't I don't hear it. Does anyone else hear it? Is it doing it? No? Huh? Oh no, it's it's my voice. My voice is just not good. So yeah. I don't know how to fix that. So come Holy Spirit, fix it. So um, anyways. We are, we're going to try and engage completely in the text and uh, put ourselves in the scene to try and see what we notice, okay? So first time through Luke 17, starting in verse 11. As Jesus continued his journey to Jerusalem, he traveled through Samaria and Galilee. As he was entering a village, 10 lepers met him. They stood at a distance from him and raised their voice saying, Jesus, master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. As they were going, they were cleansed. 
And one of them, realizing he had been healed, returned, glorifying God in a loud voice. And he fell at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus said in reply, Ten were cleansed, were they not? Where are the other nine? Has none but this foreigner returned to give thanks to God? Then he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has saved you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read this a second time now, and as we do, I invite you to listen for a particular word or phrase, a detail maybe that stands out to you, speaks to you, challenges you, whatever it may be. Pay attention to that, write it down, underline it, or just remember it, and ask God, why is this standing out to me? What is it about this that you are trying to speak to me through? What are you challenging me to do? Um, Whatever that may be. Second time through, Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. As Jesus continued his journey to Jerusalem, he traveled through Samaria and Galilee. As he was entering a village, ten lepers met him. They stood at a distance from him and raised their voice, saying, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. As they were going, they were cleansed. And one of them, realizing he had been healed, returned, glorifying God in a loud voice. And he fell at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus said in reply, Ten were cleansed, were they not? Where are the other nine? Has none but this foreigner returned to give thanks to God? Then he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has saved you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments to look back over that passage and especially the things that resonated with you, stood out, or questions that arose. Take a few moments to share those at the tables you're at, or if you're watching or listening to this later, share those with us in the comments. But for those of us here, take about five or ten minutes to do that, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for questions and discussion. What are some things in this that are resonating, standing out, things that are posing questions for you? Yes, Roberto. Uh, Where are the other nine? Yes. Is there a specific, because you always told us that every number... Yes. Specific to the first two songs. Yeah. Or it's just a generic number, meaning to say, where are the other ones? Yeah. Um, I think the more specific number is the 10 that we start with. Because where Jesus is here in the beginning, it says he traveled through Samaria and Galilee. Okay? So, little geography for first century uh, Christianity. Galilee is up north where the Sea of Galilee is. That's where Jesus did lived during his adult ministry. And he's there for the first about eight or nine-ish chapters of Luke. And then he begins this journey to Jerusalem that we've been on for many weeks, right? Samaria is the next region south. And he's been on this journey, and we see here he's not gotten very far. He's still kind of in Galilee, now passing through Samaria and Galilee. And the actual Greek here indicates that he is passing in between. So he's like on the border. And you may remember there was a reference previously in Luke that that we read or referenced that Jesus went into or attempted to go into a Samaritan town, but they rejected him. Okay, 
Uh, and the disciples, I think, like, what should we do about this? And he's just like, go on to the next one, you know? So it's clear he's been near Samaria, but he still hasn't made his way down to Jerusalem. And Jews would commonly bypass Samaria. They would go across the River Jordan through the region of Perea, and they would come back across into Judah. They wouldn't go into Samaritan because there was this intensely historical and um, just like very uh, visceral conflict and hatred between these two cultural groups um, of Jewish people. And so, uh, but Jesus does end up going through Samaria at different points of his ministry. He does that in John chapter four with the woman at the well. Um, But what's significant about this number 10 is that Samaria is in the northern part of Israel. And in the Old Testament, if you remember, when Israel was in civil war, they split and a certain number of tribes moved north. Anyone remember how many? 10. Okay, 10 tribes moved north and two remained in the south in Judah, and those two were Judah and Benjamin. The 10 who went into the north were lost forever. They never returned. Okay, so we have the tribe of Judah, we have the tribe of Benjamin, and we still have the Levites, who were kind of a a tertiary tribe who were devoted to the priesthood, but all of the other 10 tribes we don't really have ever mention again. So they're lost, they're dispersed. And so I think this mention of 10, based on where Jesus is geographically, is not only a symbol of the fact that Jesus is intending to reunify or reconstitute the Old Testament kingdom of the 12 tribes of Israel, that's why he's chosen 12 apostles uh, in the north, 10 of which were in the north, but also 10 also has this kind of uh, meaning in Hebrew that's it's like large but not, not complete. And anytime you add a zero, it's like larger but not complete, larger but not complete. It never, no matter how many zeros you add, it means just like a big number of people. Uh, but 10 specifically always, in my opinion, indicates the, the 10 lost tribes of Israel. And then it kind of goes into the story, and that's where the one and the nine becomes significant. But I don't think nine means anything in particular. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. Other, uh, other questions or details that stood out to you, things that you appreciate or enjoy? Yeah. What I found interesting and brought up is because you mentioned how Samaritans and Samaritans and Jewish would intermingle. Yes. But here we are, uh, ten, 10 lepers, right? Yes. One of them is a Samaritan. So I imagine they're in the colonies. I don't think that there's no segregation of the colonies. Yeah. Although, uh, mm. they You know, you'd be surprised. Well, at least they have to be put in one place, right? Yes. Well, they had to be outside of their respective cities, but there wasn't one place where all the lepers were in all of Israel. They'd be outside of their respective towns, probably more so outside of more populated towns because pilgrims and travelers would frequent those areas more commonly and the roads leading there. So they would be more more well-off or fortunate to uh, get money begging. Yeah, but they were probably all over. Yes. Yes. Yeah. These 10. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, And we don't know if the other nine were or not. It just specifies that the one that came back was a Samaritan. Yes. Yeah, maybe, possibly. Yeah. I don't think we can speculate as to who they were, but we know that this one was a Samaritan who they would consider a foreigner. Um, So this, this difference between the Samaritans and the Jews, it goes back a long time. Okay? And it goes back to that time when there was a division in Israel. And when the northern 12, uh, 10 tribes, they got wiped out by the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were in power, I think, like in the, in the 7th century BC. 
okay? Uh, or seven to 900 years before Jesus. They were like the big superpower, okay? Right before the Babylonians. And they were, uh, I've heard them characterized as the Nazis of the Old Testament. Like they were very brutal, awful, did horrific things. So they come in, they utterly destroy the Northern kingdoms, okay? And in the process of doing so, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, once the, um, this happened, 2 Kings 17, let's see, where am I? In verse 24, it says, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuta, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, five different places, to then settle there. And what happened was some of the Jews who remained there ended up intermarrying with these foreigners. And so Samaritans are Jewish people, but they're considered by the kind of full-blooded Jewish people as kind of half-breeds, you could say, or like they, they lost some of their Jewishness because they intermarried with foreigners, which was something you weren't supposed to do. It was something forbidden by the Torah. You were, you were supposed to preserve the lineage of the chosen people, your land, your family, by marrying within your given tribe, okay? And so this is part of the reason why some biblical scholars think that when Jesus encounters the woman at the well, he says... Uh, he asks her, where is your husband? And she says, I'm not married. And what does he say? You have had five husbands. And the one you are living with now, you are not married to. Those five husbands, some biblical scholars think, is a reference to the five nations that the Samaritans intermarried with. And that the Samaritan woman is a symbol of all of Samaria and there, because when you intermarry, then what ends up happening, you start worshiping the idols and the false gods of your spouses. And that was where a lot of sin and stuff started coming in. And so the Jewish people decided like, no, we're not going to have any of this. These people like betrayed the covenant. They were not faithful to what God asked them. We don't want to have anything to do with them. And so eventually the South gets taken into exile as well in Babylon. And when they come back, they try to build the temple. And there are some Samaritans who've still been living in the area, and they show up, and this is in the book of Ezra, chapter 4. Ezra is the scribe. He wants to give people the law, and uh, they're trying to rebuild the temple, and uh, the Samaritans come, and they offer to help, but this is how it's written in Ezra. It says, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached and said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God just as you do. Okay, but we can tell from the context and from other areas in here that these are the Samaritans. Okay, and what Ezra ends up doing is he sends them away and says, "We don't want your help." Okay, so you can see how historically this conflict has just amplified over time, and so uh, there are all of these uh, kind of practices in rabbinical literature that you're not even supposed to share any common vessels with Samaritans. Um, that like they're they're less than, they're beneath you, and so this is the kind of uh, attitude that the Jews had toward the Samaritans, and even more so probably the Pharisees, because the Pharisees, the head of the Jewish people, all kind of puffed up in their legalism, who would be like the best prime example of those who had broken and completely defiled the law, the Jews who intermarried, turned to idolatry, and are now this group called the Samaritans. And they're called the Samaritans, by the way, because the kingdom of Israel in the north, their capital in the Old Testament was Samaria. So it's just a, a geographic location, but they are Jews who fell away from the covenant, intermarried with foreigners during the time of civil war and exile before Jesus. And that's why there's this division and this hatred between these two groups. Yeah? Uh, how much of Samaria is in modern Israel? 
Because like what you're saying, if the Jews who feel that they're full-blooded and they're fully in, in tune with God and the faith, why are they even part of Israel today? You think more than anything, they want to, to block them out, not have them as part of, part of the same country. The Jews would want to block them out? Yeah. It's um, the whole northern part of the area. I don't know if you actually, I don't know if there's anyone tracing their lineage as Samaritans anymore. I, I don't, I've never thought about that. Um, I've never heard of someone say like, oh, I'm a Samaritan from Israel, like a modern person, you know? Yeah. I only know it in the context of the Bible and like history. So I don't know where that, had, where that was lost. I think what probably ended up happening, this is just a speculation on my part, is that they probably just ended up getting looped in with the category of Gentiles. And because of the Christian mission to the Gentiles and how that exploded, these kind of divisions kind of fell apart. And then the Jews who wanted to stay faithful Jews, they were just Jews. And everyone else was just now everybody else because they now had Christians to deal with. Five centuries later, they have Muslims. They still have the Samaritans. They have all these other groups. So they're probably just collectively the Gentiles from that point forward historically. But I, I'm open to correction because I'm not sure. I, but I haven't heard of anyone like tracing their lineage to being a Samaritan. But I do know that what was it in 1948 or something where they, there was that something passed where people could return back to Israel? There's like a famous... Yeah, yeah. I think that also there's some kind of um, um, land lineage and cultural lineage disputes that people may be talking about the fact that, oh, we were here even before you were here because they traced their lineage back to the Samaritans or even further back to that, to like the Canaanites who were there before the Jewish people came in. Because there's been all these groups of people living in this area for so long and everyone's taking each other's land and hating each other. You know, so everyone has a claim. So if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you can see the ramifications of that. Like even the city of Jerusalem has different quarters and there's, you know, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre has different lines where different uh, denominations of Christianity can celebrate services simultaneously in the same place. It's like pure chaos because of the division historically that has happened as a result of this. So, but that's a great question. I don't know if anyone is still considering themselves a Samaritan. So well, probably, you know, the Romans too had a big part yeah. in that also because they treated everybody the same. Yeah. They subjugated everybody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Rick. I always try to look look for a lesson. Yeah. Uh, by the way, thanks for getting rid of the rumble. Good. Got, got rid of it? it? Yes. I, I fixed the two knobs that I know how to work, so. The lesson that I, that I, I get from this is God works in our lives, whether we deserve it or not, mm -hmm. and that we should thank Him for it. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Vicki. What I find is interesting is that it was the Samaritan that came back for, to thank Him, and it was the Samaritan woman that really thanked Him. Yeah. The Samaritan that took care of the Jew on the road. Yeah. The road. And it was like, here they are, the ostracized, and they've been the ones that have been. Yeah. I, I like. I want you to imagine what this would have. Let's let's do a little exercise, okay? Can you all gasp? Oh, beautiful. Okay. So when I do this, I want you all to gasp like that. Okay. Let's practice. Oh my gosh, this is beautiful. Okay. So I'm gonna read a couple lines. Okay. Yeah. Let's be as loud, gaspy, and shocked as possible. Okay. Ready? As he was entering a village, ten lepers met him and they stood at a distance, okay? This is how people would have reacted because we'll talk a little bit about lepers, okay? Um, and one of them, realizing he had been healed, returned glorifying God in a loud voice. He fell at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. 
Beautiful. Oh my gosh, this is so great. Then he said to him, the Samaritan, stand up and go. Your faith has saved you. Oh my gosh. So all my dreams just came true. So thank you for doing that. But that's really how people would have received it, right? Okay. So the first of those gaps, let's talk about leprosy. <laughs> no, we're having fun. It's a Monday night. Let's talk about leprosy. It's a great party conversation. You know, if, you ever, if you ever need it. So there's a lot of laws in the Torah about leprosy. And leprosy applies to really any kind of skin disease or ailment, okay? So this applies to modern, what we would call in, uh, in modern society, Hansen's disease, which is actual leprosy. But it also replies to a lot of different, uh, applies to a lot of different skin conditions, things like psoriasis, um, ringworm, uh, luciderma or vitiligo, which are changes in skin pigmentation, any kind of skin disorder. There were all these different regulations and rituals to test it, to see if it was lasting, to see if it was contagious, to try and purify it, to try and clean it. And if you couldn't, this is what happened. You were deemed a leper, and this is the instructions for you. This is how you're meant to live the entire rest of your life. This is in Leviticus 13, verse 45. The garments of one afflicted with a scaly infection shall be rent, torn, and the hair disheveled. Okay, so you're looking great already. And the mustache covered with probably a towel, I don't know. The individual shall cry out everywhere they go, unclean, unclean. As long as the infection is present, the person shall be unclean. Being unclean, that individual shall dwell apart, taking up residence outside the camp, okay? There was even um, some things in, in like rabbinical teaching that said, if there was a healthy person downwind, you had to stay 50 yards away from them, about 50 yards in modern measurements, okay? I don't know how if you tell, but you know, someone's downwind. I mean, you're not doing a lot if you have leprosy, so I guess you're, you know, you learn to do that. But, you know, half a football field away from anyone else. So imagine being a leper. You are completely ostracized from society. You can no longer worship or make sacrifices in the temple, which means you are spiritually screwed, basically. Like, you have no chance to rectify or reconcile yourself before God, okay? You have no sense of community. You cannot participate in the festivals or the feasts. You cannot see your family if they are unaffected. And you are meant to dwell outside the camp. You're meant to look like this disheveled person, never be clean, never be groomed, shout your uncleanness at anyone who comes near you out of fear that you will give it to them. That's your whole life. 24-7, 365 days a year, no relief. And you are not allowed to leave that life until you are deemed clean and go through the purification process of being made clean by a priest. Let me tell you what that process involves. Bear with me here for a moment. This is in Leviticus 14. Pay attention to this and tell me when you would kind of be overwhelmed, okay? Just make a mental note. The Lord said to Moses, this is the ritual for someone that had a scaly infection at the time of that person's purification. The individual shall be brought to the priest, who is to go outside the camp. If the priest, upon inspection, finds that the scaly infection has been healed in the afflicted person, he shall order that two live clean birds, as well as some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop, 
be obtained for the one who is to be purified. The priest shall then order that one of the birds be slaughtered over an earthen vessel with fresh water in it. Taking the living bird with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop, the priest shall dip them, including the live bird, in the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over the fresh water, and then sprinkle seven times on the person to be purified from the scaly inf infection. When he has thus purified that person, he shall let the living bird fly away over the countryside. The person being purified shall then wash his garments, shave off all hair, and bathe in water, and so become clean. After this, the person may come inside the camp, but shall still remain outside his own tent for seven days. On the seventh day, this individual shall again shave off all hair of the head, beard, and eyebrows. All hair must be shaved, and also wash his garments and bathe the body in water, and so become clean. On the eighth day, the individual shall take two unblemished male lambs, one unblemished yearling ewe lamb, three-tenths of an ephah of bran flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one log of oil. The priest who performs the purification shall place the person who is being purified, as well as all these offerings, before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Taking one of the male lambs, the priest shall present it as a reparation offering, along with the log of oil, raising them as an elevated offering before the Lord. This lamb shall be slaughtered in the sacred place where the purification offering and the burnt offering are being slaughtered. Because the reparation offering is like the purification offering, it belongs to the priest and is most holy. Blah, blah, blah. The priest shall take some of the blood of the reparation offering, put it on the lobe of the right ear, the thumb of the right hand, and the big toe of the right foot of the person being purified. The priest shall then take the log of oil and pour some of it onto the palm of his own left hand. Then dipping his right finger in the oil on his left palm, he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the Lord. Of the oil left in his hand, the priest shall put some on the lobe of the right ear, of the thumb of the right hand, and the big toe of the right foot of the person being purified over the blood of the reparation offering. The rest of the oil in his hand, the priest shall put on the head of the one being purified. This, thus the priest shall make atonement for the individual before the Lord. The priest shall next offer the purification offering, thus making atonement on behalf of the one being purified from the uncleanness. After this, the burnt offering shall be slaughtered. The priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar before the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for the person, and the individual will become clean. It's like a regular Thursday night, right? You know? Imagine, like imagine, there is no hope for you if you have leprosy, right? No hope whatsoever. Let alone like how do you find someone and money to be like, can you go buy me two birds and some wood and some hyssop and some yarn? Like you don't have the stuff laying around. Yeah, you're totally, yeah, it's, this is the worst possible thing to happen. You would rather die. But because Jewish cultural systems had such a dignity of burial, you wanted, your whole hope was that you would die in some state of cleanliness so you would have a proper burial so that you could bring honor to your family. Because leprosy was seen as many other ailments like being blind or things like that as something that had to do with some sin that you must have committed. And God is allowing you to go through this because you did something wrong. That is how all of this is viewed. And so no one is gonna come and reach out to you because you're a sinner. You deserve this. That was the mentality of the time. It's not what scripture teaches, but that's the mentality of the time. Yes? That, that was in the law of Moses. That was Leviticus chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. That was in the law of Moses. Yeah, yep. That was in the priestly law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. That was what every, every leper was expected to do. Insane. Yes? It sounds like some crazy Oh, yeah. That's what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds really, it's a cop. 
Yeah. I mean, when you compare it to some of the things that other cultures were doing at the time, it seems pretty normal. But, you know, um, but this was a, a people who had been given a sacrificial system and had been given certain uh, rituals to do that set them completely apart from the people around them. So as weird and off the wall as they may seem, they seemed even crazier to the people around them, you know? And it made them consecrated for God in some special particular way, okay? But I just I want to, like, kind of let that soak in, you know, how utterly hopeless this would have been, Okay? And so when you hear not one, not two, not three, but 10 lepers coming upon Jesus, like I'm surprised it doesn't say, and then three of the apostles had a heart attack and died right there. Like this is how shocking this would have been to see this many of them in one place and to be approached by them. But as he was entering the village, 10 lepers met him. They stood at a distance. Remember, they have to be 50 yards downwind on average. And they cry out and ask, have pity on us. This is literally their only hope. Is this person they've heard of named Jesus who's working signs and wonders and miracles because they have no other hope in heaven to be saved. And the thing we can take from that is that we're in the exact same boat. We are utterly hopeless, worse off than the leper, stuck in our sin without Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. So as shocking as it would have been that the person who comes back and has faith is the, is the Samaritan, because the Pharisees listening to this probably were like, oh yeah, someone came back, that's a good Jewish person right there following the law, and then they hear it's a Samaritan, and then the foreigner is the one who's praised for their faith, and not a faithful Jew, not a Pharisee. That would have been completely, utterly shocking and upside down to everything that the Jewish people were experiencing culturally in their religious practice at that time. That's how it would have been heard. Get off of my Levitical soapbox. I just really wanted to read that. <laughs> so, other thoughts? Yes? Um, so, I thought Jews and Samaritans don't Yes. So, how can this Samaritan show himself to a priest? whom I'm assuming is a Jew. No, so the Samaritans also had priests. Um, so, the, the priests, yes, there were some, they were centralized in uh, Jerusalem, the Levites, but there were also Aaronic priests. They traced their lineage to Aaron, Moses' brother. And in Joshua, there's a delegation that they're meant to be spread out and have land outside of many different cities. And so even though you would mostly encounter priests where there was a temple or a place of worship, and the Samaritans did have a place of worship, it wasn't a temple, but it was a place on Mount Gerizim, it was a mount in their region, you would still encounter priests living in areas by the cities because that was their allotment of land. And they were meant to kind of stay local and then they would kind of rotate into Jerusalem or into places of worship throughout the year to help. Uh, but they wanted to be local so that they could help with other things that didn't involve the sacrificial system of the temple. Does that make sense? Yeah, so there would have been priests that were from a lineage dating back to that time when this division happened that would have been also considered now Samaritans. And they'd still probably be keeping their priestly lineage. It's something all Jewish people did. It's called a toledot. It's a genealogy. It's something very um, sacred that you would be keeping this, you know, showing how God had worked through generations in your family, tracing your, your family lineage back to Abraham or Moses or these people of the Old Testament to show that you were part of the promised people of God. Um, so that's, that's probably who they would have been. Yeah. Yes. 
I think was more, even more powerful about this particular gospel, if you, if you take a look at what we've been doing over the course of these last several weeks, we've been hearing metaphors and parables. This actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. And it's plain. Yeah. It's plain what Jesus did. The thing that's most impressive to me in this, and you'll hear this Sunday, uh, the first reading from, I think it's from first, second Kings, second Kings chapter five. It's a similar story where the prophet Elisha heals Naaman, who's the leper. He's a general in the army of the king of Aram in the Old Testament. And he uh, captures a, a Israelite girl and becomes the servant of uh, his wife. And she says, you know, this leprosy thing, there's a prophet that I know who can heal you of that. I'm paraphrasing. And he goes and he sees Elisha, and Elisha tells him, go cleanse in the Jordan River seven times. And he leaves, and he's very mad. He's like, this guy could have just healed me. But his servants and the people who travel with him are like, look, like this guy's a holy man. This isn't that hard to do. Like Maybe you should just do it and see what happens. And he does it, and then he is healed. Recognize the faith of these lepers. Okay, They cry out to Jesus. This is their last chance. And what does Jesus say? You're healed? What's the first word he says to them? Go. Show yourself to the priest. No healing. Healing has not happened yet. And what do they do? They go. They go. This is how I think we are to pray. In fact, there's something like this in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Sorry, I don't have it bookmarked. Chapter 11, verse 24. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, all that you ask for in prayer, believe that you will receive it, and it shall be yours. Do we pray as if we've already received it? Do we pray with this trust in God that like, yeah, you're already going to do this. I know that you're going to bring healing. I know that you're going to provide for me. I know that you're going to give me what I need. That's what's so impressive about this, is that's what the challenge is for you and I. When we pray, to pray with such devotion, such surrender, such openness and trust, to say, God, I'm praying to you, trusting that you've already got this under control and the solution is already coming. And my practice of prayer is not so much trying to bend your will to my ear, but bend my will to your patience and your timeline. Bend my will to wait for the solution that you are already presenting and already at work in. That takes deep faith and surrender because we tend to pray, or at least I tend to pray, in a way that's trying to get God's attention and get the answer or the solution now. And when I don't see the immediate fruit in my life, I can get frustrated, irritated, say things like, God, where are you? Why aren't you working? I've done all of these things. Why aren't you showing up? And what Jesus is presenting here is a view of God, a trusting relationship in God that says, before I even utter the prayer, you are already at work in answering it. That is the faith that if we bring that to prayer, things like the words of previous week's Gospels, where mountains will be moved, mulberry trees will be uprooted and thrown into the sea, those types of things can happen. And we have that kind of radical trust in God. That to me is one of the most profound things in this passage, is that they go because they are utterly hopeless. They have no other thing to hang on to. And they could have just gone back to their camp and said, oh, you know, another thing that we thought was going to help us didn't work out. He just told us to go show ourselves to the priest. What are they going to do? 
They're thinking of Leviticus 14, verses 1 through 20 that I read. We can't do all that. You know, we're going to go and show up, and we're not going to be cleansed. And then on the way, they're healed. Yeah? Do you think that's why only one returned? He's the only one that truly believed, so therefore he's the only one that was actually cleansed. It says in here, as they were going, they were cleansed. So it seems clear from the text, all of them were healed. Well, all of them were cleansed, is what I'll say. Because there's a difference here. There's a progression uh, between being healed, being cleansed, and being saved. You see these different words that are used? Okay, being cleansed is something that is a ritual word. This means like you are now allowed to go back into the temple. Being healed is more of a full restoration. You know, what was broken in me, what's been wounded in me, not only the fact of having leprosy, but all the social and emotional damage, the psychological damage has been healed. But then beyond that, then being saved, being forgiven of sins, being promised a place in the kingdom of God. You see that progression? And I think a lot of times people, we come to God and we ask for healing, but what we're really asking for is just to be cured of something or just for a solution to a problem. We don't really, we don't really know what healing is when we ask for it. Because if we really meant, God, I want you to heal me, we would be presenting our entire unadulterated self to the Lord, completely vulnerable, naked before God, and saying, God, you can have all of it. Destroy, move, change anything of it that you want. But it is all yours to be healed and restored. But most of the time, we present this just one sliver or corner of our life and say, God, I need you to fix this. I need you to cure this sickness. But Jesus is not in the business of curing people. He's in the business of healing them. And the healing is always meant to lead to the saving. And we see that here. But we see also very commonly in our own experience the path of the nine lepers, that we're asking too little of Jesus. And finally, they're cleansed. They thought they got everything that they wanted. So why would they go back? They're going back to their whole life they've been hoping for. It is a lesson in gratitude, for sure. You know, they were ungrateful, not willing to come back and express their gratitude. But I think it also shows that maybe they were just looking for something a little too narrow. And it maybe had become very big because their whole life was about being a leper, right? Like that whole being ostracized, being completely destitute and hopeless. Yeah, sure. Once that's gone, like, let's just run back home. You know, let's get to the priest. Let's get our life back together. You can get caught up in it. Maybe not go back and say, say thank you. But the one got it. And I think the one understood that if Jesus can do that, then there's even more that Jesus can give. And I want to go back and see what that might be. And that's why he's the one who's healed and saved and not just cleansed. Other thoughts, questions? Yeah. I would say all of the above, plus the fact that it has this line in here where it says, realizing he'd been healed, returned, glorifying God in a loud voice, and he fell at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. So I think we talked about this. Oh, no, I talked about this yesterday at uh, RCI in Catholicism 101. This idea of faith being, uh, it, it's not just a set of beliefs. It's a radical trust and obedience in God, Okay. So there's a sense that, like, I trust 
uh, I used this example yesterday. I trust that the garbage man is going to show up. I don't even think about it. The garbage man is going to come empty the dumpster. I don't lose sleep over it. I'm not wondering, like, is the garbage man going to come this week? What are we going to do if the dumpster is overflowing? Like, my whole life is going to be derailed. Like, I don't even think about it, right? But I'm not going to go out to the garbage man next time I see him and be like, hey, can you come babysit my kids even though we've never met? Like, trust you. Okay, that deeper trust is what we're invited to with the Lord. The problem is sometimes I don't think we even trust the Lord as much as we trust the garbage man. Like, we don't even trust that God's just going to show up every day, every week. You know, we're wondering, like, God, where are you? But the faith that we're invited to, the faith that he's praised for is that deeper trust, total reliance that I'm willing to become vulnerable, willing to worry or surrender worry and trust that you've got this. You know, sure, take my kids, garbage man. Like, sure, God, take everything that is precious to me. And I entrust it to you because I know that you are a good father who gives good gifts to his children. And if anything bad, sinful suffering comes my way, I know that you are going to even try immediately that you're going to try and use it to bring about a greater good. Even though it wasn't your plan A for my life, you're still going to work it for good somehow. That's why his faith was praised, because he didn't just have the faith of going to the priest, of coming back and thanking him, but he fell at the feet of Jesus and worshiped, recognizing who God is, putting him in his proper place, and doing justice, which is giving God what he is due, and he is due our worship. Yeah, thank you. Great question. Other questions, thoughts, reflections? Yeah, Greg. You talk about that cleansing ritual and everything, and I remember well, a few months ago I was reading an article on CNN about different cleansings and rituals and burial rituals mm -hmm. that the Egyptians have mm -hmm. and what they would do for body odor. And if a woman was about to give birth or her particular time of the month kind of thing, like yeah. all the stuff, just awful stuff they used to do. So oh, read Leviticus, you know, man. That's all in there, too. The world at that time, I'm thinking, God, they just had a bar of ivory soap. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And that's, I think, why it's so complicated, right? That's why I think Leviticus, that those, those instructions I read in Leviticus are so complicated because they needed an assurance that the person was really healed. They didn't have all of these modern you know, luxuries that we have of like, oh, you want to know if they're clean? Just like bathe them like in soap, you know, like, and they don't have soap, you know, like they needed to make sure that they'd gone through such a diligent process that there was no doubt as to whether or not this person was clean and purified. Whereas for us, the equivalent of that, if this structure was still in place, probably would have adapted and changed to something more like, just like, go take a shower. Shave your head, take a shower, you're probably good, you know? <laughs> go see a doctor, take some medicine, you know? Yeah. Here? Oh, no, so what that, that wasn't, uh, the, the process wasn't to heal the person. Okay, so all of that, those 20 verses I read of what you do, that wasn't supposed to heal you. What you had to figure out somehow along the way is how to get healed. This was just like if it cleared up on its own while you're living in a community of other people with various contagious skin diseases, even if you just had ringworm or vitiligo, now suddenly you're living with people who have actual leprosy, okay? So now you're all catching each other's stuff, but on the off chance that you just suddenly heal, you got a strong immune system, you think you've beaten it, all the sores are going away, then you go to the priest. And that was just a ritual to be extra sure that you were healed. But it wasn't meant to heal you. Even more difficult, right, to imagine being in that situation. Like, that was what you're expected to do if you could find some way to miraculously be healed. 
But, but I don't know of any records of anyone saying like, yeah, I was healed of leprosy, and then I did this, you know, that, you know I don't think that rabbinical uh, scribes were that specific. <laughs> I doubt it was very common. Any final thoughts? God, are you there? <laughs> yeah. When you think about how civilization has, and society has improved over ages, I mean, things like this, like their rituals and all like the emotional and physical drama and ostracism, because they did not have modern medicine. Mm -hmm. And now modern medicine developed over time. And other things like, I mean, the development, the development of the railroad, for example, that you mm -hmm. can get on a train in Paris and go out to the ocean. Things like that are like to completely open up your mind and completely change your viewpoint on your life and everything else. And now a major burden could just be gone. Yeah. You know, just brought in. It's just, just another example of that about we think about what we have and how how modern we are and like what we still are missing out of and so such such basic needs. And you look at what they're going through on such profound basic level. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, just uh, yeah, I mean, a hundred years ago, people died of things that if you get today, you don't even bat an eye at, you know. And this kind of reality was still happening 150 to 200 years ago at, in Molokai, in the leper colony with Saint Damien. You know, he wasn't that long ago, and he died of leprosy ministering to them, and they were in complete quarantine and isolation on this island. But as you were sharing, what I was thinking was that. Yes, it seems to us on the surface like how much more difficult it would have been to live then. But in one sense, I think like how much easier it must have been to have faith. Because you couldn't turn to medicine and have faith in that. You couldn't turn to all of these modern luxuries and things we have to distract us and say, oh, this will save me, this will help, and have faith in that. It was a culture that was so utterly reliant on God that all they had was faith. And I think that's why such miraculous things could happen so much more frequently. And it's not that miracles don't happen today. Don't get me wrong. Things in Scripture that Jesus did and that the apostles did still happen today. And I've seen them happen. I've witnessed them happen. They happen all over. And especially in places where the church is in a missionary territory, or places which is becoming increasingly everywhere, but you know, in places where it haven't been proclaimed the gospel ever or in many generations, these things happen like wildfire. But here in the West as developed and as maybe technologically and uh, te technologically advanced and supreme and comfortable as we may think we are, I think we, in, in a sense, have an even more complicated rule of our modern version of Leviticus, but in terms of all these other things that can distract us from faith. Like imagine if you needed to have faith in God and be completely cleansed and healed from all of the bad attachments that we have to the things in this world, how many things you, how many processes you'd have to go to, through to let go of all that noise, all that addiction, all those toxic behaviors and relationships and all of that stuff that they wouldn't even have thought was an issue at the time. It wouldn't have even arisen. And so in some senses, we're, we're not that different. In some senses, they were better off than we, and in others, we're better off than them. But the story still has a lesson for us. 
The one thing I want to point out before we close is, is these phrases that are, are listed here. Jesus, Master, have, have pity on us. Or your faith has saved you. These also show up when Jesus is healing other people, like the blind man at Jericho. Um, or the Canaanite woman who comes to him, or the woman, uh, the sinful woman who pours alabaster oil on Jesus' feet and he praises her and says, your faith has saved you. It's always people who are the unexpected, always people who are the marginalized, the oppressed, not the people who the religious structure at time would have seen as the appropriate people to be near the rabbi or to be praised or to be set as the standard example. You know, for everyone at this time, if you were going to set a gold standard, you would quote a previous rabbi. And you would say, Rabbi Shemel or Rabbi um, whoever said this, lived their life this way. And what Jesus does, and he says, that person over there who you say is too unclean, they're the new gold standard. That Canaanite woman who you won't even approach because of cultural differences and hatred, she's the standard. That blind man who you think was blind because of his sin or the sin of his parents, and you think you're so much better than, he's the standard. How humbling and angry that probably must have made the Pharisees in their own entitlement, and their own pride. And so for me, this, this I think has two lessons for me as we go forth in this week. And the first is, do I pray in such a way as if I've already received what God is going to give me? Do I have that type of expectant faith in all that I do? And in the places I don't, how can I begin to surrender and open up to God and say, all right, Lord, I'm going to let go of my ideas, my plans, my thought of how my life is supposed to be or how you're supposed to answer my prayers. And I'm just going to trust that you are who you say you are. You're a good father who knows what he's doing. And secondly, is to keep an eye out for my own biases, my own pride or entitlement or the ways in which I think, oh, God couldn't possibly do that, or God couldn't possibly work in that person or in them. So we live in a world right now that is obsessed with them, whoever they are, and pitting us against them. Pick any category, politics, ideology, religion, money, economy, whatever it is, race, gender, could be anything. And something I've been praying about, I think I said this at one of the previous Bible studies, um, is that that I think is what the enemy wants the most because the enemy is not, the enemy is no person for the Christian. The enemy is the enemy. And anytime we are saying them and painting them as if they are the enemy, then we're doing something anti-Christian. We're doing something antithetical to the gospel. And Jesus is inviting us to do something different. Now, what might that be? We have to discern. We have to use scripture to tell based on that situation what that is. But we know it is always going to be characterized by love and always going to lead to things like cleansing, healing, reconciling, salvation, unity, and never division, never hatred, never anger. And so for me, those are the two things I'm going to be putting into practice this week with this passage, is asking myself, am I praying with enough faith? And then am I seeing and acting in the world in such a way that I am eliminating the them from my life and expecting Jesus to work in everyone, including me? Marco, did you have something you wanted to add? I was just wondering with the praying in terms of just like, you know, praying as though it's already happened or something. What happens when the praying is tied to the praying? 
I think it's just trusting in the fact that God knows what he's doing. And you know what I often think about? I often think about the raising of Lazarus. And what most of us don't remember is that Lazarus died again. Like he died again. Like the real healing was when he was fully restored to the person God created him to be in heaven. If he got there. I assume that he did. Yeah, we celebrate St. Lazarus. He's there. Yeah. Sorry. Momentary minor heresy there. But... No, I just forgot, but it's not a heresy. By definition, not a heresy, but uh, just a, a moment I forgot. But so I think like recognizing when we pray and trust that God is going to heal, he's just not always going to heal in the way that we expect. And sometimes the healing that comes is they're welcomed into the kingdom of God and they don't have to suffer anymore. And that's something that we have to then let go and surrender and say, all right, I have to let go of my desire to see God heal in the way that I want this healing to happen and help me to see this whole situation, not just with eyes that are focused on the suffering and the loss and the grief, but are focused on the fact that that even can be the impetus for God to bring grace and bring healing in other ways. And that's a very hard thing to do. I'm not saying that it's easy, because I've experienced very profound death and loss in my own life so far, in the young life that I've had. But still, eventually, death comes for all of us. And we can only pray against it so much until we recognize what we're really praying for is healing, and eventually that healing is going to be heaven. And when we have that perspective, when we live our lives in the ways that we're supposed to, that becomes more of a welcome reception than a fear. So whatever the prayer looks like, pray as if it's already been received. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, thank you for the gift of this night and this study. Thank you for allowing us to see into our own lives, our own prayer, our own faith, and be challenged to trust you more deeply, and also to be challenged in the ways that we view others in the world, and to bring down our ideas of division, our ideas of otherness, our ideas of separation, and to see that you desire us all to be healed, cleansed, unified, saved, and to work toward that with love and to remember that no person is our enemy, but the enemy is the enemy. And so we pray, Lord, that we would pray with expectant faith and hope and let that overflow into all of our actions toward others, soaked in love as we go forth this week. We pray all these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.